Well, to whom much is given, much is required. And we ask the Lord's blessing, and we are grateful for God's blessings on us as a nation insofar as we're being faithful with the freedom and the resources that he has given to us to make the gospel known to the ends of the earth. And that's our purpose as God's people, to see the responsibility that he has put before us and to be sure that we're rightly using what he's entrusted to us so that he would get the glory for it. Let's pray together, and then we're going to get into the message. Father, thank you for the many blessings that we enjoy. We recognize today that there are believers gathering around the world who don't even have the simple freedom that we have to be here as we are in this place, boldly proclaiming that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, Lord, we don't want to take for granted what you've given to us. We want to use it well, uh, and you've blessed us with so much, and it's so tempting for us, Lord, to use what you've blessed us with for our own satisfaction and our own pleasure. And, Lord, you've given us things to enjoy, certainly, but you've given us things that we might serve you and make Jesus known. So help us to that end. We pray for uh, your people that uh, you would be glorified through us as we serve you and as we find our hope in you. And now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, you are our source of joy. You're our source of happiness. And I pray that you would give us a clearer understanding from the scripture today of what that means and how it practically applies to our lives. And that we would be a people that are caught up in, in your glory and the joy that we have because of that and the eternal joy that is before us as your children. And I uh, pray that your Holy Spirit now would be our teacher in these moments, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will, make your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16. My message today is entitled, Rejoice Always. And sometimes when we look at the commandments of Scripture, some commandments seem easier to embrace and to follow than others. How in the world can we rejoice always? Or how can we be holy as our heavenly father is holy well thankfully it's not about our strength or our ability it's what god does for us in us and through us and as a result of our relationship with him then we can grow in our joy and our understanding of what happiness and contentment is all about so i think that the words happiness and joy even are interchangeable in a sense now you may have heard in the past someone say well Happiness is predicated on circumstances, whereas joy is based on your faith. I think that is a false dichotomy. I think that happiness, as it's presented in the scripture, means blessed, uh, the blessings of God that come to us, which bring us joy. So happiness and joy are interchangeable ideas in the scripture and are virtually the same thing. So to rejoice is to feel joyful. And I also want you to know today as we think about this subject together that our joy or our happiness is not based on temperament alone. Now some of you, your world is always sunny side up. I mean you wake up in the morning, you're chipper, you're loud, you're smiling, you're talking, which totally annoys me. <laughs> and some of us have joy and we rejoice, but we have to remind our faces that we are joyful and we are rejoicing. But thankfully, to the ability to rejoice always is not based on our natural disposition. Some people are more uh, 
prone to be happy and chipper and uh, be joyful in their presentation, and others are a little bit more melancholy. They're a little bit quieter, a little bit more reserved. But this is not based on that at all. It's based on who God is and what God does in us and through us. So I'm going to ask you this question today. Is there consistent evidence in your life of rejoicing? Are you living a joyful life? Is there a happiness about you uh, and a deep abiding joy that empowers you to rejoice always? That gives you the ability based on who you are and what God has done for you in order to rejoice. Now, I read somewhere that 40 years ago, there were only a few hundred studies or pieces that were written each year on the subject of happiness. And with the rise of the information age and the explosion of information of all kinds, I understand that this year there will be something like 10,000 pieces that will be written specifically on the subject of happiness. You say, well, shouldn't we then be a happy people? We're in this relentless pursuit to find joy in our lives, so shouldn't we therefore be happy? That's not what the statistics show. Anxiety is on the rise. Depression is on the rise. A general malaise of dissatisfaction with life is on the rise. Suicidal tendencies are increasing, and the numbers are going up across the population. And even though we've been engaged in this relentless pursuit for happiness over these last few decades as a culture, we're not finding it. Now, let me just pause for a moment here and say that if you are struggling, particularly in a way that uh, you feel like you want to harm yourself or you're particularly in some type of a depression that you just feel like you can't get out of, I want to encourage you to seek medical attention. Find somebody who can help you. I'm not talking about that level of unhappiness at the moment. I'm speaking more in terms of our daily rejoicing always because of who we are in the Lord. And we all go through those ups and downs and those peaks and valleys and those natural uh, things in life that bring us to that point. And that's what we want to focus on today. So just two words in the scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 16. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Always. God does not command the impossible. When God says in his word, be holy as my heavenly father is holy, when the scripture indicates that to us, we can't be holy. The only way that we can be holy is through the gospel. When we have a relationship with Jesus and our lives are transformed and we are declared righteous in him, we're set apart for the purposes of God, then we can live holy lives empowered by the Holy Spirit. We also cannot be happy on our own, at least not for very long, if it's not for the work of God in our lives. So I want us to think in these next few minutes that we have together, uh, how we can practically rejoice always, and what are the characteristics of our lives, if you will, that enable us to do that. First of all, rejoicing is rooted in knowing Christ. It's rooted in knowing Christ. Now this is important because the scripture is clear that God is the God of joy. And if we were to take all the Bible verses today that talk about God being the God of joy and rejoicing and happiness and blessedness, we would be here the rest of the day because the Bible is absolutely full of them. In fact, the psalmist said in Psalm 16 and verse 11, in your presence is fullness of joy. In the presence of God is a fullness of joy that cannot be explained by earthly circumstances. It can only be explained by who he is. 
Let's take this a step further. And in Zephaniah, it says that God joys over his people. And when he joys over his people, he does so with singing. So I think that God has the best voice of all. And when he looks at us and we're his creation and we are his children and we are his servants and we know him and we have that relationship with him, he has joy in us. And because he has joy in us, he sings over us. Just like when you see your children and they're doing something, they're making a good faith attempt to honor you and to do what you've told them to do. You rejoice over them and you have joy in them because of who they are in your relationship with them. So God is the God of joy. And then because of our relationship with Jesus, he gives us joy by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me explain to you how this works. When I come to understand the gospel that God is holy and I'm a sinner and I'm separated from God and that God made the way for me to be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus, And Jesus came to this earth and lived a perfect life and fulfilled the law of God and died on the cross in my place and was buried in a borrowed tomb and raised from the dead. And that if I come to him by faith, receiving forgiveness of my sins and accepting the gift of eternal life that God has for me, then I am forgiven. I'm a child of God. I have the gift of eternal life and the spirit of God comes to indwell me and to indwell you. So when the Spirit of God is at work in us, he makes what was dead now alive. He quickens us so that we're regenerated and we're brought to spiritual life by the power of the gospel and the resurrection power that resides in Jesus. We are sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit of God baptizes us into the family of God, and then he gifts us with the fruit of the Spirit. So as we keep on being filled with the Spirit, then the fruit of the Spirit becomes a reality in us because the Spirit of God is living in us. The fruit of the Spirit is lived out through us. Now, I remind you that the second aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. It's rejoicing. So by virtue of your relationship with Jesus and by virtue of my relationship and the fact that we know Christ, then we can have joy that comes from God through the Holy Spirit. I'm reminded of an account in the scripture in the gospel of Luke chapter 13. Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. Just get in your mind's eye. We don't know how many people were there, but probably a good amount of people with Jesus teaching. And the religious leaders were there. And as Jesus is teaching, a woman comes into his sight who is handicapped and actually physically disabled and bent over because the Bible says of a spirit that had troubled her for a number of years. Now, Jesus was teaching on the Sabbath and he sees this woman, tells her that he has set her free. He lays hands on her and she is healed and she stands upright in the middle of all these people and she starts rejoicing. And she was happy over what Jesus had done. Now, what do you think it would be like in here today if I had that same ability and there was someone who were to walk here to the front and they're bent over, disabled by a spirit for all these years. And by the power of Jesus, I'm able to lay my hand on them and tell them they're healed and they've been set free. Don't you think there would be rejoicing? Don't you think you would step back and look and say, look at what God has done. 
Look at the power of God and how he has set this woman free. But the religious leaders were there. And they said, look, you want to get healed? You can come on six other days. You don't have to come on the Sabbath. Come get healed on another day. And Jesus said, you bunch of hypocrites. Hard to believe that people could be that hardened after what they saw. And Jesus rebuked them for their attitude and their words as they stirred up the crowd and tried to contradict what Jesus had just done. And he said, wouldn't you take your ox or your donkey and feed them and give them water on the Sabbath? And then the scripture says in Luke chapter 13 and verse 17, when he had said these things, all his adversaries were humiliated, but the whole crowd was rejoicing over the glorious things that he was doing. Did you know that when somebody comes to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that's the greatest miracle of all because it is an eternal miracle that God works on our behalf to bring the dead to life? And there ought to be rejoicing when people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Regardless of what those who would contradict it would say or regardless of those who would mock it would say, there should be rejoicing because of what God does in our lives. And that's where our true joy comes from through knowing Christ. And when Jesus sets us free, we are free indeed. And when Jesus sets us free, there is rejoicing in our lives because of it. John chapter 15 and verse 1, Jesus said, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. In verse 4, he said, remain in me and I in you. And then verse 11, he said, these things have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Let's focus just for a moment on these two words, remain and full. The joy that we get from Jesus is a joy that is constant. He's not going to give it to us and then take it away from us and then give it to us again and then take it away from us. No, when we're connected to Jesus, he is the vine and we as the branches, then we have a joy that is constant and it is continual in our lives regardless of what we're dealing with. And that joy is full. You know what the word full means? It means complete. It means lacking nothing. It's a relationship with Jesus that brings us rejoicing that is lacking nothing and is full. And that's why he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy might be full. Because that means you're going to get to keep it. It means that joy is not going to be fleeting. It means that your joy can grow if you're in Christ. It means that you can be more joyful as you progress in your relationship with Jesus. And it's not based on the circumstances that are out of your control. It is based on the fact that you know Christ. And when you know Christ, that's the game changer. That's everything. And it's a joy that's going to endure Notice the scripture in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Now, let's just put this into perspective. Jesus left the glory of heaven, and he came to the mess of this earth, into the midst of brokenness, sin, sorrow. He was tempted at every point as we are, yet he was without sin. He came to do the will of the Father, and he knew what was before him. He knew that he was going to have to endure the cross. You understand what the cross meant. The cross meant that Jesus Christ was going to bear the weight of the sins of the world. That Jesus was going to endure the very wrath of God so that our sins were upon him, so that we might be forgiven. And when Jesus looked at that cross, he was willing to endure that because of the joy that was before him. What was the joy that was before him? It was the anticipation of the fact that he was fulfilling the will of God and that when he fulfilled the will of God, he was going to be back at the right hand of of God, at the throne of God, in the presence of God forever. And he was willing to endure what he endured for a moment because he knew what he was securing for eternity. He was willing to take that pain and to bear that weight for us because he knew what was going to come in the future. And when we know Christ and our rejoicing is in him, we can know that regardless of what has happened in the here and now, that our hope is in him. And rejoicing can be found even when we're in crisis. And maybe I should say especially even when we're in crisis. Now I know how some of you are thinking today. You started arguing with me when I started preaching when I said rejoice always. He said, come on now, preacher. You don't know my life. You don't know what I've been through. Come on, preacher. You don't, you don't know that my marriage is on the precipice of collapse. You don't know that my middle child went off the rails and is struggling and I don't know what to do and I don't have the answers. You don't know that on Wednesday of this week, I went to the doctor and I got a a diagnosis that I was not anticipating. You don't know that at the end of the month, there's more month than there is money and we've been struggling financially. You don't know these things. How can you say to me, rejoice always? Is this just Christianese? Is this just a, a religious platitude that we just throw out there and say rejoice always? Or can this be a reality for me? even in times of crisis. Many of you will be familiar with the name Johnny Erickson Tata. She grew up in a very active household in Maryland. Her father wrestled in the Olympics in the 1930s. And as a result of that, their family was very active. She swam and rode horseback and played tennis and did everything you might think a young person would do who was athletic. And one day she was at the Chesapeake Bay. She did not test the water that she was about to jump into. She dove headfirst into it at the age of 17. And the water was more shallow than what she had anticipated. And when she dove in, she was severely injured, becoming a quadriplegic. By her own testimony, In the days that followed in her rehabilitation, she was angry and was depressed and disappointed and had thoughts of suicide and thinking the worst of the worst. But God in his faithfulness brought her through that 
And not only did God in his faithfulness bring her through that, but she started a ministry that God exponentially blessed that has an international impact called Johnny and Friends. She's written 40 books in the years that followed. And if you're looking for an encouraging book that helps you to understand the whole ethic of suffering and how God works in the midst of that, her book entitled When God Weeps is one of the most powerful things that I've ever read. I would highly encourage you picking up a copy of that and reading it. But here's what Johnny Erickson Tata had to say. She said, the path to joy is full of pitfalls, valleys, and steep climbs. But Christ has gone before us, imparting to us his enabling power to suffer with him. Christians have no reason to be miserable or pessimistic. There's no room for gloom and doom when you're a believer. Oh, I didn't tell you also, just a year or so ago, Johnny Erickson Tata was diagnosed with breast cancer. She had a radical surgery as a result of that and thought that she was healing. And they found another nodule that was related to the original cancer surgery that she had had. And even now she's dealing with that. But her joy in the Lord remains. It's consistent. Even though she's experienced great crisis in her life. Also think about the example of the Apostle Paul in Scripture who wrote our letter here to the church at Thessalonica. He also wrote a letter to the church at Philippi. Oh, you remember Paul? He was known as Saul. He was trained up in the Jewish ways. He knew the Scripture. He knew the Old Testament ways, the First Testament ways. And he became a persecutor of Christians to the point that he was even there when Stephen was stoned to death. And when Stephen looked up into heaven and was received by God into his presence, he was there. Saul was making his way on the road to Damascus and he encountered the risen Lord Jesus. He was struck down by a light. You know the rest of the story. He was powerfully transformed and the one who had been a persecutor of Christians became the greatest missionary that the world has probably ever known. And you would think that the greatest missionary that the world has ever known would have been on all the programs. He would have stayed in the best hotels and flown the best routes of flights and gotten the best honorariums and been treated with honor, right? Absolutely not. Just the opposite. He wasn't put up on a pedestal. He was attacked for his Christian faith. He was stoned and left for dead. He was run out of cities. He was shipwrecked. Just about everything you can imagine that could happen to a human being happened to the Apostle Paul. And then he was accused of stirring up trouble falsely. And he appealed on behalf of the fact that he was a Roman citizen all the way to the Caesar. And by the time he wrote his letter to the church at Philippi, he'd been sitting in incarceration for quite some time. And yet he was able to say to that church, just as he says rejoice always to the church at Thessalonica, he was able to say to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, I will say again, rejoice. He said, wait a minute, he had had all that stuff happen to him and now he's sitting and he's incarcerated and he's writing a letter back to the church that's known as the letter of joy? How could that be? It can be because 
rejoicing can come to us not just in spite of our crisis or our suffering, but sometimes it can come to us especially in our times of crisis and in our times of suffering. And I want to say to you today that failure cannot steal your joy. Failure cannot steal your joy because God's grace is greater than all your sin. Disappointment cannot steal your joy because God's plan and purpose for your life is better than your plan and purpose for your life is. Loneliness cannot steal your joy because Jesus promised that he would never leave you or forsake you. So no matter what the circumstance is, God is faithful. And I look out at this congregation today and I can think of numerous situations that you've been going through or that you have gone through in the past. And if I had the opportunity today and the time to say, hey, brother, stand up and tell us about that and remind us of how God was faithful. Hey, sister, would you stand up and remind us how through the darkest moment of your life, God was faithful one by one, people would stand up across this building and give testimony to the faithfulness of God. You see, that's our hope. It's in who God is. It's in our relationship with him. It's in every circumstance and crisis. And we can say, God has never left us. God has never disappointed us. God has never hurt us. He's always been faithful. And we want to give him the glory for his faithfulness in our lives. And then there's a third aspect of how you can rejoice always. And that is rejoicing comes from contentment. Now this is a hard one because we live in a world where enough is never enough. Remember I told you that dissatisfaction seems to reign in much of our culture. Everybody's a professional critic. We're always picking out the wrong. We're always looking for something that's going to make us more happy and more joyful. And we cannot say enough is enough. We can't be content with what God has given us. So here's how it goes. You get tired of your spouse? You think the grass is greener? I just think I'll go find me a new one. Get tired of what you have? You're going to keep on clamoring for more. And you can buy the newest and the finest thing possible. And you'll get discontent with it eventually. You don't believe me? Go spend about $40,000 on a new car and ride it like you rented it and wait about three or four years. And you're going to look at that car and you're going to think, I think I need me a new car. I'm not content with that old car anymore. And we are continually in that cycle. And I'm telling you, friends, it is a trap. Discontentment is a trap. Because what it says to us is that what we have is not enough. We're not satisfied with the basic things of life. We're always wanting more. But notice what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6 through 8. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. And if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now let me just ask you all. Honest before the Lord, if we had to stand up here and say, 
I'm content with food and clothing. That's enough. Could you say that honestly? Many of us couldn't. But that's not ultimately the point. You could be the finest minimalist of all and still not be where you need to be spiritually. Because the precursor to the contentment is godliness. So the rejoicing that comes through contentment is something that comes to you because of your relationship with God. And we can rejoice because we are right with God and we trust him. And we can say God is enough. And we can't just say God is enough as though we're settling, as though we've gotten to say, oh, we're spiritual now. We'll bear our cross. God is enough. That's not what we're saying at all. We're saying he's the God of the universe. He's the one who spoke it all into being with his word. He's the one who upholds it by his power. He's the one who lavishly loves us and pours out his grace on us super abundantly. And because of all of these things, when we see the beauty of who God is and what it means to know him, then we find our contentment in him, our godliness in him. And then the godliness that comes with contentment, therefore, is great gain. There was a story that was written in the 1800s by the Russian author uh, Tolstoy. And he entitled this little piece, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Now, here's how the story went. There was a peasant who was told that just for a small amount of rubles, that he could have as much land, here's the stipulation, as he could walk in a day. Sun comes up, peasant starts out on his journey, and man, he's covering some ground. He's like, good night. I'm getting a lot of land out of this deal. And more and more he goes, but then he notices that the sun is starting to go down. And as the sun starts to go down, he gets even in more of a frenzy and he's hurrying and he's hurrying because the rule was he had to get back to where he started in order to gain what was promised to him and what he had covered. And he gets back in a rush to the finish line and he drops dead. Right there at the end. And the question asked, how much land does a man need was answered by Tolstoy. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. Now that's an interesting little tale. It's somewhat entertaining. But friends, the same thing could be said of us. Do you believe the scripture that you brought nothing into this world and you're going to take nothing out of this world? I'm pretty sure that when I was born, not only did I have nothing, I didn't even have any clothes on. And when I leave this world, I'm not taking anything with me. Somebody might put something nice on me when the whole deal is over with, but I'm not taking it with me. It's going to remain here. So if that's true, then why do we get so caught up in the moment and what we can get our hands on and the material and the things that we think are going to bring us pleasure, which are nothing but fleeting? They're not lasting. So why are we spending all of our energy and all of our efforts chasing after that stuff? Or what about the scriptural example of Solomon? You remember Solomon, the man that was promised anything that he asked for from God? And he asked for wisdom? 
His wisdom was so overwhelming that everybody around was amazed. And in his life, he set out on this attempt to find joy and satisfaction, essentially. He tried wine, women, and song, as it were. And he found that they all came up empty. You know how Solomon described them? He said it was just vanity. But then he said this. It was like grasping for the wind. On a breezy day, if we go outside and we grasp for the wind, what are we going to get hold of? Nothing. It's not going to last. And that's the pursuit of life for many people. They're going down that pathway of pleasure and satisfaction and happiness as they see it. And they're not realizing that they're going down the wrong path to find it to begin with. They're chasing after all the wrong things. And here's what Solomon said at the end of the whole thing in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. He said, fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. So Solomon said, look, I went deep in the well of everything that the world had to offer. And I drank from that well all that I could drink. And when I came up at the end of it, it was all vanity. It was all just a grasping for the wind. So let me tell you what the summary of the real deal is. This is reality. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. Contentment is only found in a relationship with God. I want to tell you the flip side of that just quickly. If you lack contentment in your life today, the reason that you lack contentment is because you're looking for it in the wrong source. Are you walking with God? Are you spending time in his word? See, this is not just a platitude. This is the Christian life because his word is authoritative. His word gives us guidance on how to know him, but then also how to live for him. His word tells us where contentment is found that brings us joy. And when I sit down in front of my Bible and I read a verse like Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, I say, thank you, Lord, for reminding me what really matters. Forgive me, Lord, for going after the things that didn't matter, that I thought mattered, that were just like a grasping after the wind. And when I sit down and I'm re reminded that in the presence of the Lord is, is fullness of joy, and I hear the words of Paul, rejoice in the Lord always, and I'm reminded that my hope is in him. And I find my contentment in him. Where's your contentment? Do you have it? Is it lasting? I'm going to give you this verse and we're going to close. Psalm 33 and verse 1 says, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. It's a thing of beauty. Let me suggest how you might apply that to your life. First of all, remember where you came from. We sang a song this morning, we will remember. I still remember the day you saved me. It's one of the lines in that song. Go back and remember that 
you once were lost, but now if you're in Christ, you've been found. Go back and remember that there was a time when you were blind, but now you can see. Go back and remember there was a time when you were dead spiritually, but now you're alive. And remember all that God has done in giving his only son so that you could be saved. And then you ought to consider where you presently are. What's God doing in your life today? How could you look back over the past week and say, God, you were faithful. You provided for me. I had what I needed. I had a blessed week. You're good to me. You sustained me. You gave me the strength and the health to go and do what I needed to do. I got to enjoy some things that I wanted to enjoy. All of it is from your good hand. And we should live with that attitude of thanksgiving daily. But then there's a third part of this. You ought to anticipate what is to come. You ought to be looking forward. As you keep your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith, you ought to be anticipating what God has for you. Because you understand that the scripture says that this life is but a vapor. It's a, like a wisp of smoke. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. None of us know what we're going to be doing tomorrow or next week or next month or even if we're going to be here. But what we know is that Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will receive you unto myself that where I am, there you will be also. So the hope here is not just a temporary happiness or, or joy or celebrating this life, but the hope is eternal rejoicing in the very presence of God, the God who saved us and the God who brought us to life and the God who sustained us along the way and the God who is going to take us by the hand when our life on this earth is over and usher us into his presence. And when we get there, we're going to say, God, you are the treasure. You are our hope. And we thank you. And we bring the praise and the glory to your name because you're worthy. You're worthy. So you see, rejoice always is not just for the select few. It's for all of us. Now you need to live it. You need to put it into practice. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Father, admittedly, this is an area that some of us struggle with. And we lose sight of what is truly important. And we don't experience the rejoicing as we should. Father, I ask you would forgive us of that sin. Of looking elsewhere for life satisfaction other than in you. I pray first of all for my brothers and sisters in Christ that you would help them with their perspective, help them with their focus. And this week as they evaluate their lives and ask that question, is there evidence in my life of rejoicing continually? Help them to answer that honestly. And if it's not true, Lord, to, to find that joy in, in you, it's an eternal joy. But Father, I know enough to know that in a, even a crowd this size today that there are probably some here who have never met the Savior. They've not received the greatest treasure of all, a forgiveness of their sins and a relationship with Jesus, who is Lord and King.
I pray they would come to you in faith, turning from their sins and turning to Jesus in these moments. And God, make us a joyful church in a world of dissatisfaction, in a world of professional critics. Make us people that are just happy about what you're doing, that are hopeful about the future, that hold on to the promises that you've laid out in front of us. And as we do that, get glory, Lord, from our lives so the attention will not be on us but on you. We give this time of response and invitation over to you and ask you to use it as you see fit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.